Luton Life, brought to you by the Mall Luton. This is the place to come if you want to lift the lid on the real life of Luton. Here's the Mall Luton Sophie Solaria. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Luton Life. I am your host, Sophie Solaria, and in this episode we are marking and celebrating 100 years of the Royal British Legion. Started in 1921, the RBL provides lifelong support to serving and ex-serving personnel and their families. We shall be focusing our attention on one person in particular that they have helped and supported. I'm Michael Lewis, I'm the Royal British Legion Community Fundraiser for Bedfordshire. I kind of got into the role from being ex-armed forces myself. Michael has dedicated his whole life to the army in one way or another. Joining at just 16 years old, it was the only thing he wanted to do with his life. In a break to the usual format of our Luton Life podcasts, I want to spend this whole episode focusing on Michael's story and his incredible life so far, starting from the very beginning. As a warning, some listeners may find parts of this podcast hard to listen to. Here's Michael now. From the age of 13, I'd literally joined the, the local Army Cadet Force and just loved every minute of it and literally wished three years of my life away to join the Army and I wanted to be frontline as well. As soon as he turned 16, Michael took himself off to the Army Careers Office to see what he could do with his future. Being from Cambridge, Michael had an idea that he wanted to join the Royal Anglian Regiment. But the Army had other ideas. I mean, my first day going to the Careers Office, uh, there was a Royal Anglian soldier there and I was like, great, I said, I'm in the cadets, I want to join your regiment. And he took one look at me and he was like, you want to join the Parachute Regiment? And I was just like, no, they're all big guys, skinheads, missing teeth, covered in tattoos, scary blokes. I don't want to do that. And that wasn't even in my top three. Um, but yeah, when I got down to uh, medical and fitness test, passed all that, did really well in the fitness, came top three of the fitness and everything. Had the final interview with an officer and he was like, right, parachute regiment, you've met all the criteria needed. So I just thought I went, right, this is what I'm doing. For those of you who don't know, the parachute regiment leads from the front as airborne infantry. Paratroopers are trained to conduct a range of missions from prevention tasks to complex high-intensity war fighting. It was not a job for the faint-hearted. The main access of getting onto the battlefield is by parachute. Uh, in today's conflicts, it's more by fast rope, by abseil and things like that. But you can deploy anywhere in the world within 24 hours. It was time for Michael to get trained up. He was sent to Litchfield for his basic training, where he was the youngest there by years, and things started to get very real. Once you got picked up by the corporals, it was very sort of man-managed. You were told to stand there on the, on the train platform, pick up your bag, get on the minibus, and everyone was silent on the minibus sort of thing. And then everyone lined up in the corridor, said to attention, and, and a corporal shouting and screaming that you're not worthy of being here. And It's like the films. Yeah, it's literally, you know, you're not worthy of being here. You know, this is a, a tough regiment, I guarantee you. There will only be 10 of you sit at the end of this course. So, yeah, it's pretty brutal. I got punched in the throat on my first day by my corporal um, because I got his name wrong. I never forgot his name after that. Michael passed the 27 weeks of basic training with flying colours and was as ready as he would ever be for action. As Michael put it, he was thrown into a conflict situation much quicker than he'd expected. Sierra Leone, operation called Op Barris, uh, happened where it's where the West Side Boys, which is kind of Sierra Leone's uh, militia, had captured six Royal Irish British soldiers uh, in the jungle. I pass off the square, meaning just done the whole drill, marching around um, in front of your parents and everything. And um, the inspecting officer at the time was uh, General Sir Mike Jackson. He came over to announce that those that are going to one and two para 
you'll be getting on the buses and going to Sierra Leone. I used to have a long weekend with my family. And we go up to my dad going like, Where, where's Sierra Leone? He's like, I think it's Africa. So I was just like, all right. He's like, good luck. Give me a slap on the back. And that was kind of it. That was, that was kind of like his mentality sort of thing. My mum was just that sort of give you a little rub on the shoulder and was just like, try and call us if you can. I rocked up. I was a brand new recruit. Just come out of training. You know, he's a Joe in, in basic training. Joe Crow, lowest the low. And then you get promoted to Crow, which is like combat recruit of war. And everyone's dumping all their kit on top of you, extra kit to carry and everything. And I'd... Yeah, I'll never forget, it was like a, uh, an RAF civilian plane uh, called a TriStar. And we was, all our faces all camouflaged up, all this kit, all this ammunition. I carried a box of grenades and my machine gun. And this civilian air stewardess was like, you can't come on here with that, onto this aircraft carrying that. And our sergeant major just literally pushed him out of the way and was just like, right, put the grenades in the overhead locker, put your weapons under your seats, get comfortable, all rammed in like this. And that. it was quite a, quite a sight to see. That flight flew the men to Kenya, where they got on a Chinook into the jungle of Sierra Leone. Beautiful beach, horrible, horrible country. We were on the beach and literally the Special Forces wanted us to be a fire support. So they would, the idea was they would come in by Black Hawk helicopter, abseil into the middle of the Westside Boys' sort of village where they lived, go in and rescue the hostages. And we were pretty much on the outside of the villages, laid up and literally waiting for them to come out. And was, our job was basically just to shoot anything that moved in front of us. So yeah, 18 years old, kind of, this was quite wow. This is quite amazing. This massive yeah. shot. The level of responsibility for an 18-year-old. Yeah, it was it was quite, um, yeah. But I, you know, I didn't think about home or anything. I was just thinking about the job in hand and I just didn't want to let the guys down that I was with. That was, that was my biggest thing, I thought. But it wasn't just the mission that Michael had to face. It was the jungle itself. We abseiled in, um, that went all well, but got into this swamp, it was about chest height having to hold this machine gun above your head and of all the kit and everything else you got with you, it was just literally ammunition and water, that was it. It was just praying for a breeze. And then these mosquitoes, they're like the size of like golf ball, just landing on your face, just eating you like that. I mean, come out there with a head like elephant man afterwards. Like, it was just horrendous. Despite the wretched environment and hellish situation, the mission went well, and Michael's first taste of combat life had been experienced. And it went from there. So after that, the Twin Towers were hit um, in 2001. I literally didn't know about the Twin Towers until the evening. Been on the ranges all day, came in, and everyone was like, oh, have you heard on TV what's happened? I was like, no, no, and then sort of saw that famous sort of footage on the TV when the plane goes into the towers, and I was like, wow, you know. I was in Afghanistan in Kabul 72 hours after um, the Twin Towers got hit. And again, it, looking back, I mean, it, it felt like a circus. I mean, no one knew what we were doing. You know, half of us were in desert kit, half of us were in green kit. I had desert trousers, but a green top. There wasn't enough body armor to go around. You know, he was having to like take your back plate out to give to your mates so you could wear one in the front. It was the old body armor system. So it's just a square that covers your heart. Nothing like we got now, which like covers everything, you know, and uh, we were there for three months. Thankfully, that mission was tame. The army were mainly there to keep the peace. Not long after his time in Afghanistan, Michael found himself in Iraq. So I went to Iraq in 2003 and that was kind of a bit of a, everything was kind of calm when they called it a war. But then um, when uh, they decided the war was over, they tried making us go into what we call peacetime ammunition scale. So things like, you weren't allowed bayonets, you weren't allowed grenades, you weren't allowed belt-fed machine guns and things like that. That's when all the trouble kind of really started. It was after the war had ended when the IEDs, or improvised explosive devices, became more frequent which was tough. 
Yeah, Rack was a, was a big eye-opener. I keep saying it, looking back and the kit and equipment we had then and, you know, the, the body armour and things like that, you know, it was just... I think just being a, an aggressive regiment is what kind of got us through it, really. It was a tough tour. I was I was shot on that tour. Uh, shot, shot? Shot through the shoulder on that tour. Wasn't bad enough to come back to the UK. Um, stayed in Shiba Log Base in, in Basra on sort of like light duties and things like that. What was the f- mood like? What was the feeling in camp? Um, I think most of the guys just want to get out there and do the job. With the IED threat going up, that was more, I think, more worrying for the guys than being shot. With IEDs, it's always the unknown. You Tell know. us a bit about IEDs. Improvised explosive devices, IEDs, they're sort of man-made. They're very clever how they make them. Um, they can make them from pretty much anything. They see you coming, they can get these devices in the ground very, very quickly pour a bottle of water over it, pack the sand around it, and it dries because it's so hot uh, very quickly. And it's unknown, you don't really know it's there. And because of the amount of rubbish that's there as well, and the content on the ground, um, they're very, very hard to spot. Michael was in Iraq for six months on that tour, and he had his first experience of loss. I lost a very close friend of mine, and he lost an officer on that tour. It was tough, you know, it was the first sort of experience of like, losing someone as well in that sort of situation. Were you prepared for that part? Um... I don't think anything ever prepares you for that, especially if it's someone you know. But I think because you're in that environment every single day, when you get into a big firefight, you'll notice a lot of the guys start laughing because it's just unbelievable. You just think, we're here doing this. And uh, with the amount of people we've got compared to what's out there, you know, it's, it's crazy. You know, you've got 120 guys looking after an area the size of East Anglia. You know, it's, it's crazy. And you know yourself where you come from you know your village, your town at the back of your hand, right? You know, every, oh, this alleyway takes me here and this does that. It takes you three or four months just to get used to where you are. And within that six months you're on a tour, you might be moved somewhere else, then it takes you another couple of months to get used to the layout of that ground. So fighting people in their own back garden is, is very, very, very tough. They know it like the back of their hand. Exactly, you know, and they're very good at, because it's guerrilla warfare, they could literally ride around, ride around on their bike, Hello, mister, bottle of water, this, that, the other. Like, no, thank you, not today. And they can cycle back, pick up a weapon, fire at you, drop that weapon, and then blend back into society without even you knowing. By the time you confirm where that's even come from, they're, they're just carrying on with their normal day-to-day job. Two years after leaving Iraq, in 2006, Michael found himself there again for a winter tour. Then, in 2008, he was deployed to Afghanistan as a corporal. It was a tour that would change him forever. During our tour of Iraq in 2006, Afghanistan was really heating up again, and it was uh, it was a tough, tough tour. It was a summer tour, um, so it's like they they fight a lot more in the summer than they do in the winter. Uh, and yeah, we lost uh, 12 guys in that tour. It was a brutal tour, and about about 60 guys got injured. Uh, me being one of them. I was five months into a six-month tour. In Helmand, you've got a place called Kajaki. At Kajaki, there's a dam, uh, and that dam provides all the power and electricity for Helmand province. And you've got the Helmand River that runs all the way through Helmand, and about 200 metres either side of it, you've got what we call the green zone. So all the crops and everything else grow, grows in and around the river, so the poppy fields, which is the Taliban's main source of income. They obviously harvest poppies for opium, for heroin, um, which then gets sold across the world for drugs. In 2008, about halfway through the tour, they decided there was this, this big dam and it was only powering on one turbine and they thought if they can get an extra turbine into this dam, it would produce more power, more electricity, 
mean the locals wouldn't have to grow poppies for the Taliban. They could grow in their own crops because the green zone would expand out. This turbine is not like a little generator. It's, um, it had to be broken down to 40 low loader lorries and it had sites journey from Camp Bastion uh, in the south of Helmand, had to get all the way up to Kajaki. So it's like going from South End to Norwich. That's the kind of distance you're covering through Afghanistan in probably one of the most war-torn zones you've ever been in. If the Taliban got hold of it, they wouldn't know what to do because I think there's only they said there's only four people in the world know how to operate this dam. But it's just the fact of losing it would be a big, big failure to, to the British forces. It was Michael's platoon's job to push the Taliban back to clear the way for the convoy to get through the desert. They would be there for three or four days clearing the mines and the IEDs to make it safe for them to pass. The day came for them to perform this task. Four o'clock in the morning was all set to go out. There'd been a massive casualty. It was actually an Estonian uh, call sign. They'd been hitting a huge IED and all medical assets had to go to that incident. So we thought we was in our base for the night, which meant it gave us extra time to plan, prep, rehearse before we'd go out. An hour later, it come down that we were still going to go out and we were just like, oh my God, we've got less than an hour before it gets light. We're giving full view of the Taliban. I mean, parachute regiment soldiers are quite famous for carrying a lot of weight on their back, moving over the ground very, very quickly. But because of the IED threat and the mine threat, everything slowed much, much down. You've got guys at the front with metal detectors going through, clearing the way for 120 guys. You know, it's a big, big thing. We set off uh, first lights like coming up. Uh, we listen to the Taliban's radios. We have interpreters. Um, they come and relay back to us. So straight away they said they'd seen us out on the ground and they were getting ready to attack us. So I was leading guys at this time and I was right at the front. So my seven guys were like the spearhead for the whole platoon for the company moving towards this village. So I got a building which I'd sort of set onto, which I was going to like attack and move into. It's not like a building up we're in now with four walls and a roof. It's literally just four sand walls um, with no roof on top. So we pushed up onto the roof. You have a bit about a four inch wall you can get behind. And we kind of peeped over the top to have a look. And we could see young fighting males, Taliban, moving towards the tree lines, getting ready to attack us. We got the machine gun, put it up onto the ledge. As we lifted it up together, we come under intense firefight from this tree line. So we literally took cover. I mean, of all the firefights I've been involved in, this was probably one of the heaviest I've ever been in. And the wall was just getting hammered. To us, it was going forward, straightforward, textbook, company attack. We'd done it time and time again. I was in communication with the other corporals on the ground. It was going well. That was until the artillery got involved. The officer came on the radio and said, uh, artillery is coming onto the tree line in two minutes. Two other corporals on the radio, do not fire, do not fire, We're too, you're too close. We're taking the tree line now, we're on it. Do not take, do not fire. His officer came back on the radio and his last words were, get your guys' heads down, it's going to come in close. British Army cannons sit about a mile away in the desert. The bombs inside them are two foot long. The artillery fired three into the situation. It wasn't until the second one landed between us and them, I realised it was our own. At the same time, my second in command and my best mate, he was hit in the head, um, survived, but suffered a real nasty brain injury. So I said to the guys, get off, screaming at them, get, get off the ledge, get inside, get into hard cover. Got underneath the staircase thinking this is good hard cover. And then the third one landed and came through the wall and hit me. 
I just woke up and everything was dusty. My ears were ringing. I looked over by the wall. I was like, hang on a minute. I was next there a minute ago and it thrown me back about 10 foot. And the first thing I saw was my boot by the wall. And I thought, that's my boot. What's that doing there? I looked down and I saw my leg and I realized it blown my foot off. It, it felt like slow motion forever, but it was uh, probably happened all very quickly. And I saw that and then one of my riflemen was like, oh, Mike, look at your arm. I looked up, my fingers were like touching my elbow. So it's almost like someone just snapped my arm clean in half. I just couldn't get my breath back because I'd been hit in the chest as well. My body armor, it all hit me there. And I just couldn't, it's not the wind out of me. And at this point then, the pain kind of set in and it just felt like my whole body was on fire because all the shrapnel and everything sticking in me and my legs started bleeding. It was bleeding bad. Michael was badly injured and the Taliban was still attacking. He needed to get out of there. A fellow soldier and friend rushed to strap his arm and his leg to try and stop the bleeding and dosed him with morphine. Then a medic ran 150 metres across open ground to get fluid to him. The pair managed to get Michael to a point of safety, to a stretcher, where the guys ran with him for over a mile to get him to a safe point. It didn't sound like an easy experience. They dropped me a couple of times, um, which I just <laughs> kind of saw what was left on my leg getting dragged through the mud. Oh my God. Um, they got to a ditch, remember they got, to, I, would, I would have done the same, they got to this ditch and just thought, well, we're not gonna like stumble over this fence trying to get him in there, they just tipped me over, threw me into a ditch. I remember just sat there in all this water. What and was your open wounds? Open wounds and that. Um, grabbed me by the back of the body armour, just dragged me up, a, uh, up the bank, threw me back on the stretcher again. And it took them um, just over nine minutes to run a mile with all their kit on, all my kit as well. Um, I was about 16 stone back then, so it was quite a big, big lump. Yeah, they um, did an amazing job to get me to a, a safe spot. And then the Chinook came in um, and then took me off to Camp Bastion Field Hospital. And I was back on the operating table in Camp Bastion within 40 minutes of being hit. Michael survived that day. Sadly, his leg did not. But his medical team spent the next few years doing surgery after surgery to save his arm. So my left arm, um, obviously can't see it, but I've got here, this is my thigh on my arm, which was taken from my leg. Oh yeah, you can kind of see. Yeah, and I actually have to shave it because I get my leg hair grown on my arm. <laughs> Both bones were completely broken in the arm, three or four open fractures in the arm. Uh, it severed what they call the medium nerve. So that controls the thumb, index, middle and half my ring finger. Uh, and the actual graft of the nerve from my good leg into my arm. But with the amount of scar tissue and everything else, it never recovered. Leg, obviously I'm, I'm below the knee. I've lost, the, lost my foot below the knee. Yeah, I've got a prosthetic for that. And then obviously my good leg, which was badly broken as well. And that's kind of, kind of been used as a, as a donor leg as well. So they've taken bits off there to move around elsewhere, which is kind of amazing. But You you walked in here though? Yeah, I walked in here. I, I, I run most days. You I, drove? I drove, yeah. I've, I box. And the last fight was back in August. So I keep very, very active. While the surgeons did an amazing job, sadly it wasn't enough for Michael to stay in the army. He was discharged on medical grounds and didn't know what else to do with his life. Let's take a moment to think about this. Michael was 25 when all this happened to him. All he'd ever known was the army, yet he had his whole life ahead of him. It was a, it was a huge transition for me um, after my injuries. Obviously, I knew I was going to be medically discharged. I had no life skills whatsoever. I didn't know to buy a house, bills, budgeting with the army. They pay you, they take out what's theirs, and then the rest of it is yours. Who helped you? The British Legion were my first people that kind of stepped in that was going right back to when I was the day one in hospital I had two guys come to me I couldn't tell you their names because obviously away with the fairies of all the amount of drugs and medication they gave me but 
they were like, we're here to help you. Is there anything you need? And the first thing they gave me was like a toothbrush. A toothbrush was the starting point. From there, they got Michael a phone to call his parents, helped him with all the forms he needed to get his allowances. And then when the time came for him to be medically discharged, they took him to Aylesford, to the RBL village and the factory where the poppies are made. Michael started a programme to get him ready to enter civilian life. Trying to get your skills onto paper as a frontline parachute regiment soldier, I jump out of planes, I shoot people. How can I put that onto paper? But then they put, right, well, you was a, a corporal, so you were section commander, that's a, that's a team manager, you know, and, and they had that job interview techniques. It was almost like being on The Apprentice. It was like, I had a guy like, uh, what's his name, Claude, you know, the guy who <laughs> does all the interview techniques. And you're there, like, having an interview, and they just rip you apart. And it was just like, oh, my God. Like There's you know, another form of the army when yeah. you first went into training. Exactly, now, yeah, yeah. You're being trained for yeah. civilian life. Exactly. CV writing, it was all um, like learning how to budget, how to buy a house, everything you needed to learn, which they'd never done before, and that was a whole year. From there, Michael took a few jobs to see what he wanted to do next, but nothing he tried felt right. That was until a job came up at the Royal British Legion in Bedfordshire. I got, got the interview, came out really well from that, and then I was offered a job, and that was uh, eight years ago. So. so you're now the Bedfordshire... Community fundraiser. Amazing. Uh, so I promote the poppy appeal all year round, not just at Remembrance. Michael works tirelessly in his role. He organises events such as the Honour Walk in Bedfordshire, the Festival of Remembrance at the Bedford Corn Exchange. He gains support from the London Marathon and the Great North Run and the South Run, to name but a few events each year. Plus, of course, the Poppy Appeal, a huge event on its own. And he does an incredible job. So we raised about £500,000 uh, wow. for Bedfordshire, which in Bedfordshire is quite small. Luton has done fantastic. We're sort of £90,000 just out of Luton. Luton Moore have been fantastic during the Poppy Appeal. Um, I sort of contacted them quite a few years ago and was just like, any chance we can come in? Uh, I met the team from from, uh, from the mall and they've just literally bent over backwards um, to help us, you know. They've given us one of their RMU stands, which is like one of their stands that you know, people hire basically. They give it out for free. Um, they've even given us some of their staff to come down and help um, with the collections. We've done poppy launches to mark the start of the poppy appeal. You know, they've brought in like a spitfire. Just the support they've done for Luton has been amazing. Kind of given us, you know, storage here so we can store poppies here and people like schools can come here, pick up their poppies, gone over, bent over backwards. I mean, we raise at the mall, I think it's about, about £20,000 is what we raise uh, here. So yeah, it's a big, big income and it's nice. You know, all the shoppers that come here, they always say it's lovely to see the poppy appeal. Even security get involved with it as well, so it's great. And then, obviously, after the poppy appeal, we've got all this cash. The mall has also counted all that, and then they've embanked it for it all as well. So uh, it takes the pressure off our volunteers. It was incredible to hear Michael sounding so enthusiastic about his relationship with the mall Luton. In fact, he was passionate and positive about his whole life. Here sat a man who had stared death in the face on numerous occasions, yet he continued to live his life in the best way he knew how. It was a privilege to be able to sit and talk to him about his short yet incredible life and to hear the love for his job with the Royal British Legion. I do what I do because I was helped so much by this organisation and I've seen how they've helped friends of mine, friends' families, the guys who didn't make it back as well, um, and how they've helped their families. And every year, even though I'm, I'm fundraising all year round, there's two weeks of the year where, where we, we kind of stand out. Every time I wear that poppy on my chest and that, it's not just for me, 
but for the friends that I've served with and the friends that didn't make it back, the money raised really does help our armed forces and our veterans and their families as well. That's why I do it. You know, without our fundraisers and our poppy appeal organisers, which are normally an older generation, without them who go out, sit in the cold, sit outside the supermarkets and raise all this money, we wouldn't have this support and I wouldn't have had that support back there in 2008, that support there in 2003 uh, when I got shot and in, even in 2000, yeah, 2000 when I broke my hip as well. So that's why I do it. We would like to take a minute to thank Michael Lewis for the making of this podcast episode, for giving up his time to talk to us. We'd also like to thank him for his work to support the thousands of other soldiers in his position and the families that they leave behind. And we would like to dedicate this episode to Michael, to the RBL, on their 100th year and to the people who have served and sacrificed themselves for our country. Thank you for listening. Thank you.